Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 36 Batman v Superman TV Spots I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DCCU apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, I react to the first and second BVS TV spots. I explain my policy on spoilers, cover the marketing, like the Lex Luthor-sponsored content, and so much more. This podcast dives deep into the DCCU to answer the critics and the confused. The show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love the DCEU and who love to chew their food. Happy 2016. This is the year of the DC Cinematic Universe. A little over two months and we'll be enjoying Batman v Superman with Suicide Squad right around the corner and Wonder Woman shooting principal photography right now. We're about to get hit with a deluge of details and marketing. Pardon the interruption, but Future Doc here to talk about a piece of that marketing right now. The bulk of this episode was recorded prior to the BVS TV spot dropping Saturday evening, but I stopped editing to record my quick reactions. PG-13. We have that epic choral arrangement and the Batmobile revving up and rounding the corner towards Superman who gets lit up by the Batmobile's headlights and he looks regal at night. The Batmobile tries to sideswipe Superman, but it just bounces off Superman who hasn't budged an inch and careens into some gas pumps. We're treated to some familiar footage of Batman rising out of the car to face down Superman and we get new footage of Batman delivering that familiar line, tell me. Do you bleed? Cut to Superman looking over his shoulder and then taking off into the sky with Batman finishing the line, you will. It's short and familiar, but it perfectly encapsulates my expectations for the film. I was pretty excited and surprised to see it. I yelled aloud seeing Superman lit up by those headlights. And on the most simple level, it's literally Batman v Superman. I mean, Batman attacks and threatens Superman. Even if you know nothing else about the film, in this spot alone, you learn that Batman's the aggressor, he has a grievance or a grudge, which is why he makes the threat. You know that Superman is powerful and that Batman is the underdog who intends to take him down. For more invested fans, it's a remix of a lot of little things we've already seen and know, so there isn't any substantial spoilers and we're back into the main conflict and characters that look, the cinematography, and we even get a little bit of stylized slow motion. 
action. We even get a little bit of performance, but not that much. Batman is deadpan for the first part of the line, and then he delivers his final angry two words through a tightly clenched jaw. Although Superman doesn't speak, that works thematically since here he's a force of nature. He's that inhuman concept that Batman takes issue with, and allowing him to retort in this clip would humanize him. And as long as we're talking themes, we have those same ones that we've discussed before. Superman's power, his strength, invincibility, and the ability to just take off to the heavens at will. And we've got Batman's gadgets, his fearlessness, his anger, and his indomitable will. Now here, Batman's largest and most iconic iconic gadget, the Batmobile, is effortlessly rendered a wreck, and despite being humbled in fact, his attitude is utterly defiant. If you view Batman cynically for a moment, the Batmobile represents everything that separates him from a crazy person that dresses up as a vigilante at night, and Superman rendered it irrelevant, literally, without lifting a finger. Yet, what genuinely sets Batman apart from that crazy street vigilante isn't the Batmobile. It's his crazy character and his will that makes him stand up to an alien who could do that fearlessly. At the same time, Superman's indifference, reluctance, and passivity makes it clear that the issue is Batman's, at least here and in this context. Superman is relatively blameless. It's a super short segment, but it's soaked in character, and it's also filled with intrigue. Despite being composed of familiar parts, what's the context? Why is Batman already bearing a grudge against Superman at this point in the film? Why does Superman take off with no further action. What other dialogue or action transpired? It's a solid TV spot that gives us the essence of the film without really giving us any answers. And it's also remarkably funny, not in an overtly humorous way, but it's deeply ironic in the way that Snyder's films and humor tends to be. There's humor in that a three and a half ton armored tank just bounces off Superman. There's humor in Superman's absolute disbelief, Batman's impotence and humbling. There's humor in the juxtaposition of their powers, humor in the dramatic irony of Batman's threat, since we know Superman will indeed bleed, humor in the dramatic irony of knowing Superman heard Batman's last line even after taking off, humor in the dramatic irony of knowing Alfred is going to spend many an hour repairing that wrecked Batmobile in his welding smock later, and most of all, I guess I was going to save this for another podcast, but let's just get into it since I'm inspired, there's the dramatic irony of Batman's grievance and line. We did an analysis of these lines in a prior episode, but remember that that question is rhetorical, which is why Batman says you will. Well, there's a similar rhetorical question in The Merchant of Venice. If you prick us, do we not bleed? Delivered by the character Shylock, a Jew who is aggrieved by how Jews are viewed as inhuman or less than. Now here, David Suchet performs that famous speech. I am... A Jew. Hath of a Jew eyes? Hath of a Jew hands? Organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions. Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If 
we are like you in the rest, we shall resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Ah, revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be? By Christian example. Why? Revenge. The villainy you teach me, I will execute, and it shall go hard. But I will better the instruction. There is so much we could unpack here if you were to replace Jew with Kryptonian or some other metahuman, but that's another show for this discussion. Shylock relates the commonalities and the frailties of humanity to express the indignity of different treatment. And that makes Batman's Do You Bleed, You Will ironic, because his grievance with Superman is that he's inhuman, that he lacks human frailty, and that in Batman's estimation, he doesn't bleed. Yet the expression of his grievance is to make Superman bleed as vengeance or justice. Yet making Superman bleed means that now he has human frailty and that commonality now exists. And the basis of and for Batman's grievance is relieved by the very method of vengeance he attempts to extract. That is hilarious. In more direct terms, Batman is upset with Superman for not bleeding. So he wants to hurt Superman, which makes Superman bleed, which removes the reason that Batman is upset with Superman, right? (laughs) So this scene and these few lines are a tiny microcosm of the entire film, because more or less that's what's going to happen over the course of the larger plot, certainly with more nuanced twists and turns. But this line is way smarter than people realize or give it credit for, despite sounding initially like an attempt at manufacturing some quotable catchphrase. It's actually a brilliant multi-layered reference once it's unpacked. It compresses motives, characterization, culture, and citation all into seven little words. There's even more to it than that, but I've got to cut this off for now. For now, let me send you back to the pre-recorded part of the podcast. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I lied. This is future future doc here to respond to the second BVS TV spot, which dropped shortly after I finished recording everything you just heard. Uh, You're killing me. This episode is never going to air at this rate. Uh, I'm going to go through this a lot more quickly because this is composed of some really familiar material with just a glimpse of something new. Basically, Bruce Wayne delivering the line, don't believe everything you hear, son. Mr. Way, Clark Kent, Daily Planet. Civil liberties are being trampled on in your city. The bat vigilante thinks he's above the law. Don't believe everything you hear, son. Boys, Bruce Wayne meets Clark Kent. I love it. I love bringing people together. Lex, it is a pleasure. Ow, wow, that is a good grip. You should not pick a fight with this person. PG-13. And again, I'm rocked at how smart and funny these choices are. First, in terms of the smart, while TV Spot 1 is all about the central superhero conflict, TV Spot 2 gives us the human character-driven drama that is going to drive that conflict. There are no capes, no cowls, or custom rides, just civilian characters and a villainous catalyst. While TV Spot 1 was Batman's point of view, here we get a glimpse of Superman's motivation, world, 
world and villain while still getting a little bit of Bruce Wayne's characterization. Whereas Batman operates at night and through force, here Superman is Clark Kent, who is part of human society at a well-lit gathering, concerned about the welfare of others, their civil liberties, and getting to the bottom of it all with an inquiry, basically justice and truth. And Bruce Wayne comes off as a sought-after celebrity, somebody with a valued opinion or position. And he's also jaded and has a condescending attitude. Don't believe everything you hear accuses Clark of being naive. And Son comments on their relative age, experience, and wisdom. He's essentially calling Clark a child. And that builds the tension for Lex to just bust through with boys, which puts them both in their place. And we get those familiar lines from the second trailer. The entire thing is incredibly and intentionally hilarious. Again, it's relying heavily on dramatic irony. The fact that we, the audience, know things that the characters don't necessarily know. When the spot opens, Bruce gives that half-hearted smile for the paparazzi, showing his exhaustion with the whole affair. But we know why the charade weighs on him more heavily than just your typical celebrity. When Clark introduces himself civilly, we know who he really is and where all of this is headed. And just a new small detail in this slightly different cut, Bruce can hardly be bothered to focus on the introduction, and he turns his head to look at a woman in the crowd, even as Clark is reaching for his hand. The dramatic irony? Well, Bruce might simply be playing his womanizing role and ogling somebody who stands out to him, but we know that she's Diana Prince, or Wonder Woman. We get the basis for their misunderstanding between how Clark views the Batman and who he actually is, and then we get that wonderfully meta line, don't believe everything you hear, son. It's as if the filmmakers are reaching through the screen, grabbing the fans by the collar and shaking them to say this right in their face. Forget the scoops, the spoilers, screenings, the fan fiction dressed up as a review, rumor, or report. Someone please make an image macro of this to post in response to all of the above because this is the filmmakers asking you to have a healthy dose of skepticism towards anything that you're hearing. And I bust out laughing at this line. Then the dramatic irony for all of Lex's lines are obvious, and of course, it's a play on the fact that this entire film is about Batman picking a fight with this person. I haven't done a humor-themed episode yet, but I love this kind of wit and humor. Whereas the reception to Man of Steel was so heavily saddled with audience foreknowledge and expectation when it was intended for an audience approaching the film as a blank slate, Batman v Superman is leaning heavily into that, as a sequel should, to provide a whole other layer of enjoyment to the film beyond just simply taking everything at face value. It's seriously smart stuff and I'm loving it. Okay, so I'm going to send you back to past Doc, who is blissfully unaware that half of what he's recorded is about to be cut for time. <laughs> uh, poor guy. Zack Snyder is going to be on Conan on the 13th, and we're going to have a Dawn of the Justice League special hosted by Kevin Smith on the 19th. This show is called Fat Man on Batman, so obviously we're very excited about the prospect. I know a little bit, Ooh. but I haven't seen the movie yet, but I hope to very soon. Mm -hmm. um, but I there's a special coming up, this uh, CW uh, special. They're doing uh, two half hours on January 19th. First half hour is a look at Legends of Tomorrow, a fantastic yes. new show that they've done 
Seven. That half hour is all about that behind the scenes and stuff. Second half hour, that essentially it's a DC Universe movie special. So they're like, we're Super starting smart. our movie universe, so let's put something on TV for like my mom, who's just mm. like, what? Batman's fighting Superman? I thought they were super friends. So there's this like primer that kind of shows you this is Batman v Superman. We're introducing Wonder Woman for the first time. Here's some footage of Wonder Woman, exclusive mm. footage they're going to show. Nice. Um, exclusive footage, Batman v Superman, behind the scenes stuff. And then the whole thing ends with the world premiere of the Suicide Squad trailer, the second Suicide Squad trailer, really the first official one, because the San Diego Comic-Con one got forced out. Right. This is the first official one, which I've seen, and it's phenomenal. So to kick open the doors of their movie universe, they did this thing where like, we're going to take a half hour of TV time, because we own a network. We got one of those. And we got an audience that's tuned in to like, heroes like that. So that is so exciting. I can't wait for that special. Basically, I just wanted to do a clearing house of episodes before that special airs. And in the meantime, I'm going to be putting the Man of Steel analysis on the back burner. This isn't meant to be a news coverage show. And for that, I highly recommend the Suicide Squad cast hosted by Tim and Scott. If you like this show and you're looking for regular DC news, you're going to love them. Definitely check them out. I'll put a link in the show notes. However, for this show, I think it makes sense to hold off on some of our commentary or deep analysis episodes because we're so close to having official canon weighing in. And we just know that Batman v Superman is going to touch on Man of Steel topics. This is a unique period of anticipation when more and more of the general audience is starting to pay attention. So let's just ride that wave for now. And besides, Batman v Superman is certainly grabbing my attention right now anyways. That said, I hope to do at least one Man of Steel tie-in video or podcast before Batman v Superman. But as we count down to Batman v Superman, let me just refresh you on my spoiler policy. While I'm not personally sensitive to spoilers, I respect that people feel differently. And out of deference to that, I will not discuss spoilers without warning. As general principles, I do not consider official marketing materials like trailers or sponsored content spoilers. I don't consider statements made by the filmmakers in interviews from major publications to be spoilers. I don't consider wild speculation or guessing to be spoilers. Basically, the broad guideline is this. If it's something that the filmmakers or marketing didn't want you to know at this point and in this way, it's probably a spoiler. Now note that filmmakers and marketing can differ in degree on that. And in a recent interview with MTV's Victoria McNally, Zack Snyder said, quote, of course I hate it when spoilers come out. You design a movie as a story that evolves as you watch it. So moment to moment, you're thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Are they going to live? Are they going to die? So you want that experience for the audience as much as you can. If you're as an audience member exploring these articles, looking for answers to questions that you have, maybe you're okay with knowing before you go. It's like an individual taste, but like I said, I want people to see the movie without knowing. End quote. So what Snyder is saying is that he'd like people to experience his film with the platonic idea of the surprise within the moment, which is completely understandable. Of course, that desire is in slight tension with the need to reveal enough to get people to pay to see the film. So far, Zach believes that they've maintained that balance, saying in that same interview, quote, I have the benefit of seeing the movie. It's cool that they, the critics 
aspects of the latest trailer think it's too much, and I appreciate them not wanting to know. But there's plenty that they don't know. There's a lot of the movie that's not in the trailer. End quote. And that concurs with our calculation of scene footage last episode. And for all those who bemoan how much that we know, consider how wildly attention-seeking fanfiction poorly disguised as leaks diverge. If we knew as much as some criticize the marketing as revealing, there would be far less room in which to write vastly different takes on what the movie is. And that said, those fake takes fall down on a lot of little constraints that we know about, making them pretty easy to debunk. However, it's not my job to edit or improve fanfiction, and honestly, it tempers my publication of exhaustive analysis of what we've already seen, because there are a handful of insights that I haven't seen anywhere else yet, but might be better preserved in the theater experience. Here's what I mean. Go with me on this illustration. If you imagine the film like an expertly constructed dish that you're eagerly anticipating, and you have a reservation, and this is the first time that anyone outside the restaurant will be tasting that dish, you've got an idea of the chef's flavors, the restaurant, the cuisine, and maybe some of the details about the dish, but the ultimate experience of how it will taste is still a mystery. Now, say in advance of that reservation, I go through the trimmings and the trash and mechanically deduce a secret ingredient or technique, and then I can systematically describe to you why my deductions are correct, what will be in the meal, and provide an analysis of the intended effect. But how does that compare to not knowing any of that and just discovering that secret ingredient or technique viscerally through taste and texture, temperature, aroma, and plating of a composed dish, just as the chef intended within the atmosphere of the restaurant. Now, reasonable minds will differ on that answer, but I think it's a minor concession to allow those inclined to the latter experience their preference. They have one opportunity to be surprised, and they have a lifetime to consider the experience afterwards. So I can understand that point of view. And of course, spoilers can go beyond deduction and the source of the information can differ. Maybe that delivery man can tell you some of the ingredients. Maybe a dishwasher observed all the processes. Maybe the sous chef knows the recipe or a junior cook tasted the dish. However, nothing that they can convey to you in words is the same as sitting in anticipation, having it placed before you and have that cloche lifted up to reveal the actual thing for you to enjoy. Now, all that said, the anticipation can sometimes be too much for someone, which is why many enjoyed The Force Awakens the second time after the relief of watching it the first time. Of course, in order to get you to make that reservation, some disclosures need to be made. You'll need to know the reputation of the chef or the filmmakers. You'll need to know the chef's flavors like you know the filmmaker's tone. You'll need to know the cuisine like you know the genre of the movie. You'll know even some of the ingredients like you know the characters of the film. And you'll have a menu description like you'll have a synopsis of the story. Perhaps there will be atmosphere or advanced reviews or pictures before you experience the thing itself. And all of this is setting the table and part of the dining experience. If you want to pursue a more platonic ideal of purity prior to viewing, like avoiding all trailers, well, that's up to you, but I consider marketing a part of the intended experience. And on that front, if there's anything that this glut of rumors illustrate, it's that there is an intense hunger for information by fans despite themselves. And right when that's at its peak, guess what we're getting? Tons and tons of marketing. The WB their marketing and licensing divisions and advertising agencies, they know what they're doing. Consider what we've received recently. Lex Luthor featured in sponsored content in Fortune Magazine and Wired Magazine. Zack Snyder doing interviews with MTV, Film Inc., and Obsev. He's popping up in Crash the Super Bowl videos, which blend these huge brands of Dorito, 
shows, the Super Bowl, and DC. And he's got an appearance on Conan and on the CW forthcoming. Henry Cavill spoke with Cineplex, Jesse Eisenberg spoke with the LA Times, and new pieces of merchandising are announced or available nearly every other day. I know I shelled out for a few t-shirts and toys. Look, they know anticipation is reaching a fever pitch, and they're timing the marketing accordingly. Audience anticipation is a fickle thing. In September, Variety reported on Piedmont's anticipation tracking survey, which put Hunger Games in first, Age of Ultron in second, and The Force Awakens third. <laughs> well, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to see how the box office told a different story. One only hopes that history repeats itself with Fandango's December survey, which ranks the anticipation for 2016's Rogue One first, Finding Dory second, and Batman v Superman third. I don't expect the marketing to be as saturated as Star Wars, but there's going to be a lot of it, and you don't have to engage with it all. As much as you think you're being bombarded, there are still people out there that don't know that this movie is a thing for them to watch. Now, speaking of general audiences, hopefully you had a wonderful holiday like I did and a chance to catch up with family and friends. If you have a large family or distant relatives, certainly during the holidays you will have family that you love dearly but seriously disagree with. And those differences can be anything from politics, religions, lifestyles, sports team loyalties, or generational. But hopefully, you all got along and no one got disowned. So you know how to respectfully and lovingly disagree. As more and more of the general audience wakes up to Batman v Superman, we're going to get more people who are enthusiastic and excited about the DC Universe, but also people with other opinions. And we should try to be patient and positive and graceful. Ultimately, it's a movie, and it's not worth tearing others down. Genre film is now mainstream, and we're all one big happy movie-going family, fans and general audiences alike. All right, that out of the way, I just wanted to quickly share the audience reaction to the Batman v Superman trailer during The Force Awakens at my family reunion. This is purely anecdotal, but our audience was fairly lively, and they laughed at all the jokes, they gasped when Doomsday appeared, and they went completely nuts upon seeing Wonder Woman. And there was chatter into the next trailer all about how they had to see that movie. I hope you have such an enthusiastic audience for at least one of your viewings of Batman v Superman. But in my family, among four generations, some of whom remember a time before Superman and Batman existed, some didn't care for the seriousness or the dark tone. But others were utterly surprised and delighted to learn that that film was coming out. And as far as Star Wars was concerned, they generally liked it. Ray and BB-8 were adored universally. Personally, though some found the movie a little loud and their appreciation was relatively superficial. And that reaction made me really appreciate just how much these films are made for the fans these days. To just be grateful and in awe that we're getting such sincere DC superhero films and not something more like, say, a licensed video game adaptation to film. These aren't just tacky cash grabs relying on the brand names alone. They're not relying on just that shallow appreciation, but genre films these days are approached with way more sincerity, authenticity, and quality than ever before. I mean, consider how Batman v Superman was first announced to a convention crowd using a quote that only the invested fan would recognize. These films pay tribute to those references and are faithful to the broad mythology rather than any one single specific slice of nostalgia. In a recent interview with Time, Snyder said, Quote, we know the material. 
I understand the canon. I'm not crazy. I know what these characters need from a mythological standpoint. End quote. To Yahoo, Snyder said, quote, I try and stay central. It's really about staying central to the core. That's what I think the audience enjoys most. End quote. And we're talking about budgets which make these films studio tent poles compared to the days when they were disreputable and disrespected oddities with Steele's $16 million budget or Roger Corman's Fantastic Four done on a $1 million shoestring. When Snyder talks about this film, he talks about the drama first and foremost before the special effects and the spectacle. Yeah, we're very excited about the movie. I think it's real fun and it's been an amazing experience getting to work with my two favorite huh. comic books characters anyway so including Wonder Woman 2 what could fans expect from it I think the fun of the movie is that you know in the end it's a drama you know in the end it's about like they have to figure out each other to figure out how to like fight each other so it's really about like what makes them tick and how that's gonna work out in a conflict and we'll see what happens that gravity and seriousness means that there's practically no stigma in being in or making a superhero or genre film at this point and they're ever approaching legitimacy as we speak you can hardly look at a nominee list of actors or films that doesn't contain people who've starred in genre films. I don't need to tell you just how remarkably stacked the DCCU is with talent. To illustrate, here's Academy Award winning Anne Hathaway on Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. And you have experience uh, playing Catwoman in a big superhero movie. Yes, yes, and now he's Lex Luthor. So uh, would you have any advice for him going into that big kind of superhero blockbuster? You know, I, I, I wish I could say something, but it's going to be his experience and um, and and don't be afraid to make it your own because people will, I mean in my case people criticized me, criticized me, criticized the casting until they saw it and then a lot of people liked what I did and and so you just don't listen to anyone else, just do your thing, they cast you for a reason. And do you think he'll be a good Lex Luthor? I think he's going to be remarkable. I'm really excited to see it. Now obviously she's a consummate professional so her praise of her co-star only means so much but her take on the approach of these icons is an oft-repeated refrain by all actors who have to take up a mantle. And somehow it's something that moviegoers forget again and again. I can't understand being disappointed with their take on Luther when we have hardly seen what that take is yet. As Snyder said in a recent MTV interview, quote, in the trailer, of course, he comes across in a very specific way. In the movie, he's like a million times more sophisticated than what you get in 30 seconds. But that's also the fun of it. That's why you go to the movies so that you can actually see the context and understand the depth, end quote. And I buy that. The trailer has to show us something to represent the whole, but with more context and performance, it will fit into a more compelling picture. It's like trying to summarize a sophisticated and complicated curry with a single cube of potato or chili pepper. Made to represent the entire dish by itself, somebody could easily say that that potato is too bland or that that chili is not to their taste, but if they haven't tried the whole dish together, they can't really fairly judge it. Now perhaps it gives us hints or clues to let us know what it's not, like a piece of pepperoni probably means it's not ice cream, but not being ice cream doesn't mean that pizza isn't good. Okay, uh, can you tell that I've been keeping my New Year's dieting resolution so far? 
Um, without going too deep, let's just survey some of the sponsored content featuring Lex Luthor. We're going to start with that Fortune article, and I'm going to do my best to avoid restating everything. You can read them on your own. I'm just going to bring up some points to comment on. Well, Luther is 31 in 2015, so he'll be a few years younger than Clark Kent in BVS, as people tend to imagine, even if the actors are actually about the same age. And that age and timeline is the creative reason for making Jesse's character Lex Jr. This allows the LexCorp brand to pre-exist Jesse's character. If there was no Lex senior, that would mean that LexCorp was built by Jesse's character in his teens. It's a minor detail, but it shows the dedication to the continuity built by Man of Steel going forwards. The article brings up defense contracts, which get raised in the Wired article as well. And naturally, having built up prestige and wealth, Lex has an interest in avoiding the end of the world, and he takes threats seriously. Yet, he's still somewhat cagey about the issue. He says he has this world-changing technology that will protect everyone from unknown threats that he's uniquely aware of. Well, what's this technology and what are those threats? Is it something as mundane as cybersecurity and his operating system? Or is it something meant to be addressed by Kryptonian biotech? How much does Lex know about metahumans and other similar beings beyond Superman? Let's say at a minimum that Lex is aware of the Atlanteans, the Amazons, Kryptonians, and vigilantes. Well, what technology would allow him to confidently declare universal safety in the face of those. Is he misjudging his technology or does he have something beyond what we've seen in the trailers? Assuming that the threat described is superpowered beings, is the doomsday we've seen the best protocol for facing that? Consider some response time issues. If Metropolis is on the East Coast and a rogue Superman is wreaking havoc in Seattle, what is doomsday going to do about that? Or what if you're facing the Atlanteans on one coast and the Amazons on the other? Just some food for thought. The article drops a lot of other threads that get picked up elsewhere, LexCorp in relation to Wayne Industries, name-dropping Cord, and again calling Bruce out as a billionaire playboy. Well, let's move on to the Wired article. That Wired article came out many months later, and it's a little more elaborate and refined. It's a better representation of what you'll find in an article rather than sort of a parody of an article, and in my opinion, it's probably closer to the filmmaker's intentions for the character. The Fortune article seems like it was an experiment that worked, and the Wired article seems like them doing it in earnest, and that behind-the-scenes footage recently shot is them going all-in in building up Lex Luthor outside of the film. And I think that's awesome and engaging, and I can't wait to see more of it. I love all this world-building, but at the same time, I'm keeping my expectations in check in terms of how much it's going to be in the film itself. Now, ultimately, this is still called Batman v Superman, and while the praise of Wonder Woman and Lex Luthor have been effusive and universal, we don't know how much we'll be seeing of them yet. With The Force Awakens, the marketing and the merchandising let us know who the characters would be, and fans would build up elaborate expectations upon that. But when you watch the film, it ultimately focuses on a handful of characters, as all ensemble films tend to do. And I think Batman v Superman is going to be expertly balanced, so my warning is more of a check on fan expectations. If you start to believe that we're going to get a 20-minute origin for Lex Luthor, a 20-minute origin for Wonder Woman, and a 20-minute origin for Aquaman all in one film, when I spell it out for you like that, I'm sure you know that that's impossible. But sometimes you start to think about all these things that you're expecting to appear on screen all at once, and you start to lose track of the plausibility of that runtime. And as overtly said by the filmmakers and actors, Batman v Superman will have layers, and even subtle revelations can give rise to complex systems, understandings, and 
insights, if only we pick up on them. All right, sorry, I got off track on there. One of the reasons I'm parsing out the Wired article from the Fortune one is that they differ in their initial characterization of Lex. If you read the Fortune article, it calls him down to earth and just one of the guys. Wired, however, blows that up right in the beginning. Lex is intimidating and he doesn't have time for the tropes of a mogul interview. And that kind of short circuit of social norms feels more consistent with a narcissistic Lex Luthor. This kind of Lex is far more direct, being openly against the superhuman threat and invested in avoiding human extinction. And as a side note about politics and governmental disruption, Lex absolutely can do more on the outside than he can do on the inside. But if he were to run for office, I'd suggest the office of mayor rather than president. It's a bit counterintuitive, but the mayor of Metropolis would have more direct control over more people and in a network or parliament of other mayors govern over 75% of GDP more than any U.S. president ever could. That's not exactly a movie-friendly power play, but it's something that a real-world, power-hungry person might attempt. I'll put a link in the show notes. We get so many more hints of what Lex has been doing behind the scenes, including pivoting from one strategy to another after running into a wall. She, the government, Argus, meaning Amanda Waller. If Lex did indeed pivot, does that mean that he has two different protocols? One that he intended to go with, and then a second one after he ran into Waller. Again, food for thought. I have a whole section about embracing technology, but I think I'm going to cut that for time and look at what this sponsored content means. All these teases and interviews, they can only come from a place of knowing the underlying motives, intentions, and psychology of Lex. And that's consistent with what everyone has been saying about the character all along. In interview after interview, Eisenberg has praised Chris Terrio for sitting down with him and reaching a compelling psychology for the character together. Jesse Eisenberg has his own writing chops, and he has more range as an actor than the general audience may know. Between the two of them, and with a lot of space to shape the role and the performance, my hopes are very high. To touch on Eisenberg's recent interview with the LA Times, it's kind of funny that it opens with those same kinds of tropes parodied by the Fortune article and subverted by the Wired one. Eisenberg offering the interviewer Meredith Wellener a Mentos before they begin. The highlight is when Eisenberg says, quote, the character has a core of reality. Luther has a backstory that's tragic and an emotional inner life that's authentic. That's in the movie. It was my interest in playing the character with a real emotional core and this writer Chris Terrio's interest in creating a character that seemed viable in reality. End quote. And then a little later he says, quote, to call himself aggrandizing is to say that the Titanic was a sailboat. He is a narcissist of the first order, but complicated in that way as well, in that he is terribly troubled and competitive and vengeful. He looks at Superman not as somebody to destroy, but as a genuine threat to humanity. End quote. And that seems to be something he shares in common with Batman. The interaction of all those different motivations and how they change and end up is something that I'm really looking forward to. Everyone is going to have their point, and if they do this right, some people are going to walk out of the film relieved that the Trinity won and that the Justice League is coming, but some part of them wondering whether Lex Luthor is actually right. We've got to ask you now, about Batman vs. Superman. People are sure. so excited about this movie. You're playing Lex Luthor. I right. don't want to get you in trouble. I know you can't say too much. <laughs> right, but right. What can you tell us about your Lex Luthor? I was hoping to actually reveal the whole plot. Now. Um, <laughs> Feel free. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, Look it's at just that this. My goodness. Wow. Yes, yes. He has no hair. 
uh, on his head. And um, <laughs> yes, it's just like the most incredible character. Like uh, it was written by this guy Chris Terrio. This is like his next movie after Argo. He's just this brilliant writer of characters. So this movie is, you know, it's not like a kind of cartoonish uh, superhero movie. Right. It's this very serious, well acted, well written, well directed movie. It's really phenomenal. Wow, we can't wait to see you in it. Well, thanks and, a lot. And the book is really funny. Now, at this point, some people can't imagine that happening. They were expecting a suave and charismatic Lex. And from what little we've seen, this Luthor is manic and over the top and a mad scientist. How could this be believable or have a point? And if we esteem science and intelligence, how could somebody so scientifically brilliant also be evil? Well, let's just look at history, tradition, and reason. With an open mind, we'd know that science is not inherently benevolent, that there's been a long tradition of Lex Luthor as a mad scientist, and that throughout history, there have been scientists on the edge. There's a rich history of brilliant minds descending into madness. Come on, Sheldon, there are plenty of smart people who don't have mental problems. She's right. For every Newton who had a psychological issue, there's an Edison who was just a jerk. That could totally be you. Empedocles thought he was a god and jumped into a volcano. Pythagoras had an irrational fear of beans. Tesla fell madly in love with a pigeon who he claimed loved him back. Maybe he just had bread in his pocket. The list extends outside of science. Painters like Van Gogh and Pollock, chess champion Bobby Fischer. And perhaps none more as iconic as Nikola Tesla. And he was also a very interesting man in, in, in other ways. He was the only human who created earthquakes. That's kind of what gods do. Then he created lightning, the lightning that went from earth to the, to the sky. The opposite from what gods do, but equally fascinating. He uh, never had uh, a love interest in his life, a man or a woman. He slept only two hours uh, a, a day, sometimes four. And basically, mortals are sexual, which he was not. They have to sleep, which he didn't have to. <laughs> they are. Uh, he was thinking that he can control when he was going to die. He was thinking he is going to live 156 years. I mean, if you if you didn't know anything else and you just heard about these things, very dapper, beautifully dressed, the member of the upper 400, the people who could fit in the salon of Lady Astor, kind of a very good-looking and well-dressed man, and he had mystical inspirations. He was not just your regular scientist who goes to the lab, trial and error. He kind of had almost the connection with the world outside of Plato's cave, so to say. You're making a very convincing case that this was a god among men. So once Tesla got it ensconced in his life in the U.S. Uh, as an uh, as an electrical engineer and kind of this stereotypical mad scientist, there was this whole story about the electric chair with Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse kind of battling over which current would be used in the United States, AC or DC. Was Tesla ever involved in those? It influenced uh, what Tesla did next. So it was a fascinating story. Edison was first organizing shows, a little bit like Coney Island type of shows. Uh, He would send his troops through Midwest and other places, and they would pay street urchins to catch dogs and cats, and uh, he would uh, kill them publicly using the alternating current, and then he said, this animal has been Westinghoused. And that was a serious blow to Tesla and Westinghouse camp. So they decided that they have to answer Edison's performance with performances of their own. So Tesla calculated that if you let a very high voltages, 
if he let him through his body, you actually survive that. And he never used any animals. He was his own guinea pig because he just always was ready to put his life online. So he would actually let that high voltages through his body and his hair would stand up and he would turn into fountain of sparks. And of course, after that, nobody would come to shake his hands for some time and his body and his clothing would continue emitting uh, slight halos after that. This is really the stuff that the fairy tales are made of, but it actually happened. Did the fact that he was he was born in Eastern Europe and emigrated as a young man to the United States, did the Eastern European-ness add to this, this oh, kind sure. of media caricature as oh, oh, mad sure. scientist? I mean, imagine he's got this Serbian accent. Certainly, I'm sure racism had a lot to do with it. And plus, he was a strange-looking man, a wonderfully handsome man. But he was over six foot two, and I think weighed 140 pounds. I mean, so really kind of very, very slender and just an oddball. And you suggest that there are people who actually thought he was from another planet or had traveled from the future. Oh, yeah. When he was out in Colorado Springs and working with really high-voltage electricity, he um, set up a radio transmitter where he would sit and listen at night and thought that he was hearing messages from Mars. But as soon as Tesla got back to New York City, you know, the headlines were really horrible. He kind of immediately became a point of ridicule. And um, and never really lost that stigma. Never lost that stigma. In fact, the Superman comic book had a, a character named Tesla that was an evil mad scientist. Early which, on, what, when, when Tesla was still alive? Yeah, when Tesla was still alive. I mean, it must have just broken nice. his heart. Flash, true to his flat, the mad scientist, whose warnings have held the city in a grip of terror, went on his rampage of destruction on the stroke of midnight. The deadly impact of his mysterious ray smashed the famous Tower Bridge. This looks like a job for Superman. That's from Max Fleischer's version of Superman, a 1941 cartoon called The Mad Scientist. Tesla did have a bit of the mad scientist about him, and he also had a sort of strange love moment late in his life. He claimed to have invented the ultimate superweapon. Mike Daisy picks up the story. One of Tesla's last major inventions was the death ray. And that's the name of it. He actually calls it that. It's called Tesla's death ray. And you have to love that. You have to love the brazenness of just calling it what it actually is, a ray that causes death. And he holds a huge press conference to let the world know that he has, in fact, invented a death ray. And all these journalists, you know, go to see the death ray and they get there. Tesla sits them down and he talks to them and he explains that he's invented this death ray because it is a weapon so terrible that it will never be used. We all know how well that works out. And then they go outside to see the death ray demonstrated. And it's very impressive as this large boxy base and there's a sort of projecting tube coming out of the side of it. And he goes up to it and he fiddles with some settings and then he pulls an enormous lever down. Cookies, anyone? And the journalists are kind of like, really? I think we just got scammed. Does this guy scam? Did he really? And then they all go inside and have cookies and milk. And the death ray passes into legend. 
Those awesome clips were from Studio 360's American Icon series, which has a wonderful episode on Superman. I'll put links in the show notes. But basically, there is a lot of room in reality for Lex to exist as an eccentric scientist, though I suspect that his motivations and point of view are going to be far more grounded and nefariously recognizable when they're ultimately revealed. I'm looking over my notes and I think I can save the rest of these for another time. I think there's some good stuff in here, but I'm coming off winter break and vacation, so I'm relying more on clips than usual. And on that note, let's pivot to David Goyer's recent interview with the writer's panel on Nerdist Podcast. You can find a link to the complete episode in the show notes, but I just want to highlight his comments and approach to Man of Steel, which I feel continues into Batman v Superman. If you ask a writer, like, what does really that character want? If you can't sum it up in one line, then your script, it's on shaky ground. You don't have a good structure. You should be able to sum it up in one line. So Man of Steel is super simple, right? He's an orphan. He's a guy who had two fathers. He's got a father and a stepfather. And the fate of the planet will rest on which father he chooses to align himself with. His Kryptonian heritage or his Earth heritage. Will he follow in the footsteps of his Earth father or will he follow in the footsteps of his Kryptonian father? His stepfather or his father? Yeah. This is uh, this is the theme for you. This sure. person in two worlds. Yeah, yeah. Well, I it is. And I, I've realized that a lot of the stuff I've written, Blade, Batman, Man of Steel, Da Vinci, that a lot of these characters have father issues, which mm. which I do in real life. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I had a torturous relationship with my father, mm. and I think a lot of my life is about trying to repair that relationship. So I started out on Man of Steel saying, I want to tell a story about an immigrant. And I realized that I was telling a story about a man who's trying to reconcile these two fathers. It came out while I was writing it. And while I was writing that film... Over the course of the year or so that I was writing the first draft, a bunch of things happened. So I became a stepfather, I became a biological father, and my own father died all within the course of the year that I was writing oh, that. So God. so it obviously found its way into the script because there's a scene in Man of Steel, people say, write what you know, and you think, well, how could you possibly write anything about Krypton? In Man of Steel, there's a scene with Kevin Costner and the young Clark in which he tells him he's an alien, that he's from another world. And it's kind of a heartbreaking scene. And young Clark says, can I keep just pretending I'm your son? And then his dad, Jonathan, says, you are my son, but somewhere out there you have another father too. So that, I just ripped off my stepson. Really? Yeah, he was like four, and it was like the first time, because I've been in his life since he was one or so. And he's got a biological father. He sees us both, but uh, he spends a lot of time with us. And he was around four, and he it clicked for him he didn't remember life before me right. or without me, but it suddenly clicked for him because my first biological son was born that I was not biologically his father. Sure. He just kind of assumed everyone had two biological dads. He, didn't, <laughs> he hadn't really put it together. Right. And he said, that's, we had that talk about I'm his stepfather, but I'm son, hmm. uh, his younger brother's father. Hmm. And is that different or not? And it was a really heartbreaking discussion. Sure. And that I put that like, in the movie. That seems like a perfect way to put it, too. Yeah. Think, really warm but I, and honest. But I think no one had thought, you think about Superman, you think, oh, I'll, I'll buy these big action sequences. But no one had sort of boiled it down into that. A lot of great insights in there. I'm going to limit myself to one comment, which is a reprisal of the idea of layers to the story. There are certainly many layers to Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. But here, Goyer expressly talks about three of them. He has a diegetic layer where the reality of the world is dictated by an alien first contact story. And then there's 
there's the creative layer where the themes of the story are shaped by the ideal of immigration. And then finally, a character layer where the feelings, thoughts, motives, and acts of our protagonists are shaped by reconciling the views of two fathers. Now, laying out those three simple principles and having them interact is how you get a rich, realistic, and rewarding world and screenplay. And I have no doubt that the filmmakers approached Batman v Superman in a similar fashion. One clear example is the injection of a poignant quotation into Superman's costume, recently deciphered for us by Michael Wilkinson at Brazil Comic-Con. So with the Superman costume, we have a new material. The suit is uh, even a little bit more sheer, so you really get the sense of this metal undersuit coming through the blue oversuit. We have a new fabric for the cape. And also, Zach wanted to include a Joseph Campbell quote in the suit. Uh, So there's a quote from Joseph Campbell. It's, um, where we had thought to stand alone, we will be with all the world. And we decided to translate that into Kryptonian, and we put it through the S on his chest, through his cuffs, his belt, through his bicep, just to give a little extra something for the the fan with very sharp vision to appreciate. That's some really interesting insights. Here's the full and precise quotation by Joseph Campbell himself from his PBS series, The Power of Myth. We have not even to risk the adventure alone, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. Where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. That's some deep stuff on a creative level. It tells us some of the themes that Superman in this story is meant to represent. On a character level, it shows us where Superman is at. And on a diegetic level, it appears on the costume because of the importance and its meaning to Superman. We focus so much on what sets Superman apart and makes him alone. Being alien, that incredible responsibility, and his desire to do good. Yet those are the very same feelings and narratives which makes him relatable to us all. Those things that set Superman apart are the very things that let him be a part of humanity to his utmost after embracing the role of Superman fully. And of course, Joseph Campbell is open to many interpretations, so feel free to hazard your own. But I think that inclusion continues to belie the thoughtfulness and the intelligence of those who made Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. They have a real grasp of what fits with the mythology, even right down to the code names or working titles for those films. I'm short on time, so I promise I'll skip the literary analysis for now. But consider these production names and how they fit so perfectly in tone, emotion, meaning, and conveyance. Man of Steel was Autumn Frost. Batman v Superman is Sage and Milo. Suicide Squad is Bravo 14. And we've recently learned that Wonder Woman's production name is Nightingale. All of that is so spot on. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time.
You're the answer, son. Tesla had always been shy and introverted, but as he got older and more successful, he began to have these salons where he would invite people over to his house. And it was quite a thing to be invited to one of these salons to get to go to spend time with Nikola Tesla. And journalists who were writing articles about him would often get to go to be in the presence of the great man. And usually when he had you there, he would do things to you. He would show you inventions, and then he would sort of make you part of the inventions. One of the regulars at the salons was Mark Twain, and Mark Twain and Tesla became very, very close after Tesla cured Mark Twain's constipation. He'd been constipated for years and years, and Tesla had him stand on a metal plate and ran an electrical charge through his entire body, and suddenly he was not constipated, which appears to be a very good way to make people close to you. If you want to forge a lifelong friendship, cure their constipation. The favorite thing that Tesla and Twain would do is that Nikola Tesla had this, well, it was really an X-ray gun. I mean, (laughs) technically, it was an X-ray machine. But I feel the phrase X-ray machine has a certain aura of safety about it that really doesn't apply here. Because really, it's like a gun. It puts out an enormous amount of X-rays. And Tesla and Mark Twain would take turns aiming the x-ray gun at one another and they'd be like no no put put your head on it no put your head on it put your head yeah right there put your head on the end (laughs) put your head on the end all right all right hey put your put your eye on it yeah put your eye right up to it but yeah put your okay okay and they did this again and again and again and they would tape up sheets of undeveloped film behind them and they make these enormous x-rays of their body uh, their arms their legs their skulls we actually still have them today sheet after sheet of the interior of mark twain's skull x-ray after x-ray imagine all the books that never got written but even as tesla's salons got larger and larger he became stranger and stranger and he became unbelievably fastidious he'd always been clean but he started to see dirt in places no one could see dirt he'd demand things be washed eight nine ten times very obsessive very compulsive and it's right about this period that he does what every mad scientist has to do eventually if they're going to be in the big leagues they have to put up or shut up It's time to build a mountain fortress. You need to build a mountain fortress far away from your fellow man, somewhere in the remote desolation, where you can perform your experiments in peace, where you can bring your visions to fruition. Secret lair on Skull Crusher Mountain. I hope that you've enjoyed your stay so far. I see you've met my assistant Scarface. His appearance is quite disturbing. But I assure you he's harmless enough. He's a sweetheart, calls me master, and he has a way of finding pretty things and bringing them to me. Oh, into you, but I 
surprised that you agree If you could find some way to be a little bit less afraid of me You'd see the voices that control me from inside my head Say I shouldn't kill you I made this half pony, half monkey monster to please you But I get the feeling that you don't like it What's with all the screaming? You like monkeys, you like ponies Maybe you don't like monsters so much Maybe I use too many monkeys Isn't it enough to know that I ruined a pony Making a gift for you Oh, and I'm so into you But I'm way too smart for you Even my henchmen think I'm crazy I'm not surprised that you agree If you could find some way to be a little bit less afraid of me You'd see the voices that control me From inside my head Say I shouldn't kill you Picture the two of us alone inside my golden submarine While up above the waves my doomsday squad ignites the atmosphere And all the fools who live their foolish lives may find it quite explosive Well it won't mean half as much to me if I don't have you Easy living here on Skull Crusher Mountain. Maybe you could cut me just a little slack. Would it kill you to be civil? I've been patient, I've been gracious, and this mountain is covered with wolves. Hear them howling, my hungry children. Maybe you should stay and have another drink. Think about me and you. Oh, Cause I'm so into you But I'm way too smart for you Even my henchmen think I'm crazy I'm not surprised that you agree If you could find some way To be a little bit less afraid of me You'd see the voices that control me From inside my head Say I shouldn't kill you I shouldn't kill you, yeah I shouldn't kill you, yeah You're the answer, son.